This podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is growing their team with offices and remote teams across the globe. Visit shopify.com slash careers to learn more. I swear to God, Sean, I'm not going to open the database of uh, programmer dad jokes this time, so you better have something. (laughs) I'm more just laughing. I'm more just thinking it's funny that you called it a cold open. Like, we're not SNL. We're not. SNL is way funnier than we are. (laughs) That's true. Sometimes. Nevertheless, this is a cold open. I'll go get a sweater then. (laughs) There we go. We got it. Oh, God. Hi, Sean. Hi, Sam. So do you have anything in particular that you were interested in talking about this week? Well, I thought it might be time for us to do the inevitable testing episode, given that, you know... Haven't we done like three testing episodes already? I don't know that we've done a testing episode, actually. We've done lots of monitoring episodes, but we've not done a testing episode. Fair. (laughs) So earlier this week, I tweeted a picture of what I sort of think the ideal testing pyramid is that I use uh, in my slides when I'm coaching people on how to design test suites. And this basically comes out of, like, one, years of my own personal experience, but then also working with Justin Searles in particular, but sort of the other, here I'm going to use quote-unquote testing thought leaders, as, like, ways that you can work with teams who aren't necessarily, like, the most advanced testers and make sure that they're like not going to end up hating their test suite in like a year's time. And this was your testing pyramid that wasn't a pyramid at all because it had the big wide bottom of lots of unit tests and then the top of a few integration tests and a big empty space in between them. Right, exactly. So it's like it's a pyramid with the base and a floating capstone and just nothing in the middle is like, I guess, how you could describe it. Right. And there's there's a good reason for that. Right. So firstly, I guess perhaps we should define the term testing pyramid, right? So you you sort of have, it's a very traditional idea in software testing that has existed for much longer than either of us probably have been writing software, right? And it goes, it sort of goes up and down and that axis is how integrated or isolated any particular test is, right? And you have integrated at the top and isolated or unit tests at the bottom, right? And then you have a wide base and the sort of x axis is like the number of tests that you should be writing and generally the idea here is that you want to write few integrated tests because they are slow and lots of unit tests because they are fast and allow you to validate individual behaviors of the sort of units of your system i guess so i disagree that this is at all about what tests you should write okay specifically the verb there i think is wrong i think that it very much can describe the test that you should commit But I tend to write very high level integration tests that I have no intention of committing when I'm working on features just to drive me towards what the next step is. I think that's valid. And also so I know when I'm done. So that's a way that you can interpret that. I tend not to. The way I tend to think about it is that you really only want your happy path integration tests. And then all the way at the bottom, you should be writing tests for your error cases But like, there's nothing at the upper level that's going to force you to do that, right? Because otherwise you end up with what I like to call a testing skyscraper, which is where you have the equivalent number of tests for the equivalent number of behaviors at every single layer in your stack, and it's slow and painful, and you shouldn't do it. Sure, I guess my point is just that I generally still write those tests, even if they never actually get committed. That's interesting. So Because I think writing those integration tests help guide me on the unit tests that I need as well. Sure. 
I can see that. It's not something I've, I've ever personally needed to do, but like, I totally understand why you might want to do that, especially like if you're wrangling with a complex Rails feature or something, I could totally see why you might want to do that, right? And here I, I'm sort of speaking about my workflow as well as advice I'm giving others, but you're totally right that it's not horrible advice to be like, you can write a test and throw it away, right? Well, the other thing is I often go into these, I don't generally necessarily know when I'm writing a test if it's a test that I want to keep or not. Interesting. That's often a decision I make sort of when I'm, you know, get add hyphen P. Right. And so actually my sort of my extended rule of thumb from the like tweet that I did gives advice on this, right? Because what I generally say is that because you want to write as few integration tests as possible in your CI facing test suite, and I'll talk about the next part of this in just a second, like I generally want as few tests as possible that are happy path tests and actually aren't just testing individual features, but are rather bouncing through the application, right? So I would prefer to have one very long-winded and complicated integration test than a bunch of small ones that are each integrating a full feature, right? And the reason there is that users don't do that, right? No user signs up for an account, completes their registration, does one thing, and then logs out and never comes back to your application again, right? <laughs> right. That, like, categorically, most of the time does not happen. And so the idea of sort of crisscrossing through features, doing crazy things, maybe combinations of stuff that you wouldn't expect people to do but should work, are, like, all really good fodder for a well-designed integration test. And then what I like to call isolated tests, I prefer not to call them unit tests for mostly not having to argue with people on what the definition of a unit is reasons. <laughs> I think you still have to argue on what isolated means. Well, that I have a very precise definition of. It's basically a, a test in which the only thing that you are executing is like one file's worth or one function's worth of code. And then, so, so you're of the opinion that you have to mock out all collaborators for it to be an isolated test? Yes, it is literally isolated from the universe. There should be nothing that it's it's collaborating with other than than mocks exactly as you've just said okay and then these form the sort of two parts now i will note that i am practically not that absolutist but that's that's what i like to do when i'm pontificating and i'll get to those caveats in just a second right but then like i leave this large area of what most people have in their testing pyramid where i'm like just don't write these tests right that is always I think a little bit shocking to people who've never been told to do that before. And there are a few reasons for this, right? So if you write a test somewhere in the middle of your stack that is not absolutely integrated or absolutely isolated, above it, there are sort of confusing reasons why the stuff might not work in real life, but does work in your test. So a really good example of this is Rails controller tests not running the middleware stack. Well, request tests do, and so that sort of eliminates more places in which your test can give you false confidence for confusing reasons, right? And then below that is just like a field of uncertainty. If you're in the middle of your stack somewhere and you're, you're calling down, you don't necessarily know all of the things that you're invoking by doing that. And so, sure. so it can just sort of... And the other reason is that if you sort of allow this, this middleness, people might take different interpretations of what goes in each testing bucket right and well, so i think that's still true even if you have the two buckets like so let, let's slow down for a second because you've just said a, <laughs> you've just said a lot of things to unpack here yes um the first one i find interesting is the the definition of isolated because this is a thing that i've drifted in many directions on over time and i suspect a lot of others have i remember back when i was first really getting into testing in ruby destroy all software had a lot of influence on me and so 
I got very into the definite, you know, writing the isolated tests where every object that interacted with was completely mocked out. Uh And I disagree with folks who say that that makes these tests invalid because they're not actually testing the interactions between the objects and they can just pass even if your system's broken. Like, I don't think that that is necessarily a pain that I've felt, but I've drifted towards using mocks less, not eliminating them entirely, but using them less because I've found that when I write that style of test, when I change the interface between these two objects that only really exists for these two objects to communicate, I have to do a lot more work. Yeah, so that's totally valid. And I I actually have a a series of practical caveats for this as well, right? So firstly, like, if you're doing this in a Rails app, it's almost certainly practically impossible to do the thing I just said that you should do. But like, to sort of address your, your point about collaborators and interfaces and all of that stuff, it's actually usually exerting a healthy design pressure on your system when changing those things is hard, right? Uh, it's probably telling you something about your system that you didn't previously know. Well, it's not necessarily hard, though. The only reason it's hard is because I have all of these mocks that I also have to change. Sure. And actually, like, that's really that's really the point at where things like the sort of open and closed principle or, like, other things come into play, right? And it's like, maybe we should just throw this away and start again, you know, or something like that. And well, so but that's sort of my point, right, is that is the mocks are what make that somewhat difficult to do. And I'm not talking necessarily about changing like public APIs that a, a bunch of different collaborators are interacting with. Right. Well, I'm, I'm more just like, I'm not arguing necessarily against mocks, but I have, it's just a pain that I've personally felt where I'm not talking about changing interface that has, you know, a bunch of different collaborators are, are using. I'm talking about the sort of cases that tend to be pretty common where I have two objects that have to talk to each other. There's an interface that only exists for those two objects to talk to each other. And if I'm writing my tests where object B is always mocked out, then when I want to change the interface on object A, which open close principle aside, I think should be a reasonable thing to do, it becomes much more painful. And that's one of the reasons that I've sort of shied, again, not shied away from mocking, but shied away from always mocking. Yeah. So there's like many different ways that I could take this. I think one is you don't necessarily have to write unit tests for every single object that you build is perhaps the other thing that I might say here, right? And so like, for example, if your object is doing anything that's a pure function that isn't complicated, it's likely already captured by your happy path integration test, right? But like, for example, you know, my favorite sort of straw thing to call upon when I'm talking about stuff that's hard is like doing an internal service call, right? That's my, as you know, that's my favorite straw example of of something that's difficult. And there, like, you have a myriad failure points. In fact, I had a I had a new one on a thing that I thought was absolutely bulletproof this week, which was Erno ePipe. It wasn't just the the Faraday client errors that were being raised, which I had completely captured, but also ePipe was being raised, which is not a thing that I knew a Faraday HTTP call could do. <laughs> and so we had to add a, add a test and a case for that, right? And so for me, I'm less concerned with writing very, very detailed unit tests at things that are the core of my system, which frankly is where the case you're sort of citing is more likely to come up, right? And things on those boundaries where explosions can happen, right? I mean, I disagree that like my problem is only there if I'm writing a specific type of test that you just shouldn't be writing. I think that there are there are definitely cases where there are classes that interact with other classes that are worth being tested, writing unit tests for that class's behavior. Let me put this a a different way. I think you're sort of assuming that the trivial logic that isn't worth testing is on the class that I'm writing tests for. Mm -hmm. When that's not sort of the case I'm referring to, that 
trivial behavior that's not worth testing is on the class that you're saying that should be mocked out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Right. And I'm just saying like, and I found that in those cases, it's sort of just worth putting the class there versus a mock because when you change those interfaces, it becomes painful because you have to change your tests. Sure. I mean, you're going to have to change your tests regardless of if the interface changes though, right? Not necessarily if this is an interface that you're never testing directly that only exists for collaboration between these two other objects. Sure. I think you can sort of reasonably fit that into my definition because I sort of relax it slightly that's totally valid, right? Put it this way. If that object is never going to escape from the, the one that you're testing, then it, if, and if it's purely internal, then there's probably no reason to, to actually write tests around it and then have to mock the other thing, right? Well, you've, again, you've got it backwards. Like, the thing that I'm not writing tests for is the thing that you're saying should be mocked out. Yeah, I don't understand why that's controversial. <laughs> I'm not saying that either statement is controversial. I'm just trying to say <laughs> why I've personally shied away from mocking. I'm really confused. I really don't understand what you're saying here. I think we should probably just back up. Yeah. So anyway, uh, isolated tests, uh, they're good. So, okay, sticking on the case of what an isolated test is for a minute, I've got another one that's rather interesting in terms of what the definition of isolated is. Uh huh. So Diesel has tests at, you know, all sorts of weird levels. And the testing pyramid sort of shifts when your documentation gets run as tests. But that's a whole different uh, side of things. Yeah, I think I might caveat this by saying that this I tend to deliver to application teams who are relatively new to testing and not necessarily library authors and not necessarily people who have some idea of what they're already doing. Well, at the moment, you're giving this to a library author who has some idea <laughs> of what he's doing. Uh-huh. No, but so from SQL and to SQL, right, are the right. functions, they're, they're the traits that have one function on them that Diesel uses. Here's how you serialize something. Here's how you deserialize something. And we do have some cases where we say, here's like an array of bytes and assert that it deserializes to what we expect. Or here's a Rust value, assert that it serializes this array of bytes. And we mostly do that for things like integers or strings or like places where the bytes representing it are somewhat obviously meaningful. Mm -hmm. But then when we get into more complex types like arrays or date times, where if you look at just an array of the binary representation that Postgres uses for transmission in a test, it's not going to mean anything to you. So we have a lot of places where we just omit those entirely in favor of tests that are, here's a database connection, select SQL string, whatever the value is, obviously the same value as what we created in Rust, equals dollar sign one, pass in the Rust value as a bind parameter. And in this case, you know, we're testing now a lot more than just the serialization. Well, first of all, we're, we're testing the deserialization behavior of Booleans, which... Right. You know, I guess that's one that you can probably just assume is going to be fine. <laughs> you know, very specifically there, right? We're testing a lot more than just the serialization or deserialization behavior that we're looking for. Right. But we've opted to do that in a lot of cases just because it makes the tests a lot easier to read and a lot easier to understand. So you're dealing with, it's basically like, it's assertions over Postgres wire values into Rust types, right? Yes. Well, and the other, actually the other nice thing, well... Actually, this isn't true. I was about to say, in theory, the other nice thing is that this test is backend agnostic, except how you cast a string into the type that you want to test is not something that is backend agnostic. Right. And really, so, the types that this is for are Postgres specific. So, like, sort of going down the this is not advice I give to library authors route, right? Like, you can sort of make a, a reasonable argument that encoding and decoding SQL values 
is like a useful thing for your library to do, like separate to the full on public. I mean, are these public interfaces yet or not? Yes. Okay, so this is this is part of the public interface of your library, and therefore that's basically just an integration test, right? Arguably, yes. So then I guess in this case, it's then I'm just saying that I have a lot of integration tests and no unit tests because the unit tests are just right. impossible. Like when you look at it, a test, you should be able to to look at the test and very quickly discern, yes, this test is correct. Uh-huh. And, and if I say, right. take, a, take an array of one, two, and three, assert that serializes to the Postgres binary representation of, of an array containing one, two, and three, like that test is not something that anybody, even if you're familiar with the Postgres wire protocol, can look at and quickly discern whether it's correct or not. Sure. Versus, you know, testing select array one, two, three equals dollar sign one dot bind rust array of one, two and three. Right. And then assert that the result of that is true. And this is like exactly why this advice breaks down for libraries almost immediately, because you generally have stuff like that, right, where like isolated portions of your library probably don't make sense on their own sure right no also that i was gonna say so let's let's jump forward to applications a little bit too because i think the testing pyramid is a little outdated i think that in modern software it's at least a testing diamond yes and so well, well actually wait no i have my shape the other way around so i actually have i actually have something above the top not below the bottom okay so I've, we're thinking the same thing no, it's not a diamond it's yes but it's like I'm a bow tie of, uh, testing bow tie, bow tie exactly <laughs> yes because uh, let, let's you know putting microservices aside a good number not all applications but a good number of applications are at least going to have a heavy javascript front end yep and a JSON API. Oh man, you're getting to my like last point once I'm done explaining my gap. This is fascinating. All right, go for it. I think I know exactly what you're going to say. Go well, for so it. So this is like a Marshall Codex, an application I worked on while, while I was at ThoughtBot was a single page app written in Angular because uh -huh. we had a 3D rendering engine which justified right. a JavaScript framework. Right? right. And so we had five levels of tests there. We had the uh -huh. very small number of full integration tests that ran Capybara in an actual web browser. Right. And then we also had the back end integration tests hitting just the JSON API and the uh -huh. back end unit tests doing unit test things. Right. Yeah. And then same thing on the front end. We had front end tests that were exercising through Angular's testing framework the UI, but hitting a mocked out back end and then also the unit test for all of our JavaScript objects. Totally. So this is actually like the very next piece of advice I give teams after I tell them not to put tests in the middle of the testing pyramid, which is Outside of your CI run, we've sort of talked about the idea of canary test suites on previous episodes. You should have something that's running all the time, which is like the super extended version of your integration test suite that is running JavaScript, real browser, and basically just it's sat there in a loop, pinging your, the live version of your product and checking that it's actually working, right? And there are a few reasons for oh, this. Oh, pinging the live version. Okay, that's not where I thought you were going with this. Yeah, and so they're, well, and staging, and like, so, but there's, the reason I advise them not to do it in CI is that any more than like a few of those tests is going to make the CI run painfully slow, right? right. And like, even with, with massive parallelization, frankly, like, I really want to be able to take any commit and deploy it within five minutes as like a general rule, just because slow and long build times are the devil. And so, like, what I instead like to do is move all of the work of the, like, really, really heavy integration testing out 
of like blocking a build and instead pushing it to somewhere where like it will let you know if something has gone horribly wrong within a very short period of time after the build goes out, right? And you can sort of also do this by only deploying to small proportions of servers and running the suite against that or like whatever, depending on the sophisticatedness of your production environment. But the idea that one of those tests fails and then you page someone or force an automated rollback is like a really nice way of like being able to get things out faster while still having confidence that you're not breaking stuff. And it encourages people to write really extensive full browser stack testing, I guess, in a different place. It also sidesteps the problem of how do I set up all of these separate services in a way that they all reset properly between right, tests right, right. and are running in a way that are communicating on, you know, mocked out ports and whatnot. Which is a hard unsolved problem in making CI functional. I'm actually interested. So I've got a few levels of places where CI is considered painful for me. So probably bottom of this would be diesel, where each of our individual builds takes about 10 to 15 minutes, but the actual full run takes about 40 minutes because we have only four workers and I think 12 builds. But usually that's one of those. You just look at the first four builds, which finish in 10 minutes, and then you would just assume it's fine. Not like fine to merge, but, you know, fine. Like you don't need to look at it again. Then you got Crates.io, which is a little slower. Shopify, where it's it's 30 <laughs> to 40 minutes. And this is right. parallelized across like 100 machines because yep. we just have so many damn tests. The one that I find really interesting is Rust itself. Yeah. So Rust, you know, has a very strict, well, similar to how presumably your application, most people's applications work. When things get merged into master, that merge has to individually be tested so it's not you know two pull requests can run in parallel and then both get merged right one has to get run pass be merged and then the second has to run pass and be merged i have a question does the rust ci do the thing where it runs a test against a hypothetical merge commit of yes the the branch and master yes and and so that is at least like sort of quasi pipelined right right no it's it's very much a pipe like it is to the point, right, so there's a hard limit because the test suite takes hours. Okay. It, you know, it has to compile the compiler, yep. which takes 30 to 40 minutes, <laughs> and then run the full test suite, which takes right. like 20 minutes. And it has to do this for every tier one platform. Yep. And then for every tier two platform, I believe it's us to make sure the compiler compiles. So it's, it's very slow. And like, there's a hard limit on the number of pull requests that can be merged a day. So like right now, it's, it's even some folks... This should hopefully be getting automated soon, but like folks will open roll-up pull requests where it's just a bunch of pull requests that are assumed to be fine merged together. Does Rust have a like leading indicator suite that it can run against a pull request at all? So yeah, that's what Travis is. This is now so far off the beaten track as I was expecting, but so I think I've seen in the past with that people do when they have like nightmare matrixes like that and like very long lead times on even being able to like start a test suite is do what's called a leading indicator test suite which takes like less time like 20 or 30 minutes which in the case of rust would have to compile like some reasonable subset right using diff analysis or Um, whatever the, the leading subset still compiles the compiler but like it first runs make tidy and all of the things that are just like 
stylistic issues or warnings being emitted like does all that you know much earlier on than it might get done otherwise and then the travis build if i remember correctly only runs it still has to compile the full compiler to run any portion of the test suite that's actually not entirely true but the slowest part of compiling the compiler is before we compile the standard library so even if we like skip the standard library test which wouldn't make sense to do here it only saves like 10 minutes but it still doesn't yeah. run the full it doesn't run the full test suite it runs a subset of it but it also only runs it on 64 bit linux sure and so yeah this is really interesting so one of the things we've actually done for our internal go monorepo at digitalocean we do dependency analysis on every build and so actually like because go is really really easy to statically analyze for that sort of thing like we know when we change a package all of the downstream packages that might be affected by that one and so on and so, so for us, the leading indicator is, does this package still pass all of its own tests? And then it's like, it, only after that has happened, do we then check to see if all the things that could be affected by this change will get broken, right? And so, and so there it's like quite fast. And so I, I do wonder, like, again, this is hypothetical, but you could sort of imagine not having to compile the entire Rust compiler, but instead like modularizing it just enough that you could. So this is incremental compilation. Yeah. Which is a thing that Rust supports and is specifically disabled in the compiler because I should maybe reopen whether this is true for the compiler's test suite specifically. But basically, generally speaking, the problem with incremental compilation is that you have to dramatically decrease your compilation unit, right? You're no longer compiling a whole crate at a time. You're compiling probably at smallest a single file at a time, Mm -hmm. which means that you have much less opportunity to perform optimizations. Yeah. So... When you're talking about enabling incremental compilation on the compiler itself, what that usually results in is the compiler that results from that ends up being so much slower that the test suite takes so much longer to run. It is more expensive than the gains you got from how much less time it took to compile the compiler. Sure. One of the things that's important to remember about leading indicator suites is not that they are authoritative authoritative but whether or not they're useful to run before you go ahead and run the full thing and so you could imagine a world in which you pick a sort of middle ground between tiny incremental compilation and doing the full thing where that might be good but anyway like i really did not want to get into the full weeds of this this was just a sort of like an interesting tangent but yeah so like the thing to sort of come back to applications and the testing pyramid I feel like I should just slightly address more while I'm telling people not to put tests in the middle. And so the core reason there largely has to do with test suite organization. So a thing I've seen from maybe the hundreds of applications that I've looked at people's test suites is that they generally assume, like, with even within teams, very, very different things about the buckets in the middle. But the assumptions that are made about the buckets at the top and the bottom are usually the same. So what you end up getting is a really confusingly laid out test suite where you pop open, say, a controller test, and this is a straw man, and like random things are or are not mocked out, and like the request patterns are totally different between the tests, and like it's really a function of like, I'm writing this test following the TDD rules, but like those don't tell you how to actually write the macro structure of your test, right? And different people as we sort of explored, actually have different preferences on, on mocking and not mocking and all of that kind of thing. And so what I've just found from the groups I've worked with is that by forcing people to go all the way to the bottom and all the way to the top, you generally get very consistent tests that look 
really similar. And that actually helps because it means that when somebody goes to a feature they're not familiar with, they have it's easier for them to understand like what's going on. And so this is broadly advice that I have found helps people improve the consistency of their test suites in their applications. Mm. Now, it's not to say that you should never, ever, ever use the Rails testing buckets, but in order to do so, you need to kind of work at that consistency principle, right? So it's like, what will we stub? What will we mock? Are we using factory bot? Are we using fixtures? You know, do we just not write controller tests anymore? Which, do, by do the we, way- Do we just call .create? Right. Do we just dot .create the model? You know, are we dealing with legacy code where just calling dot .create on the model is hard? Right, of course. You know, but like, those are trade-offs. But if you don't explicitly talk about them with your team, you're going to end up with a nightmare test suite where no two tests look the same at the same level. And it's going to be really painful to work with. Sure. And I agree with you that on, like, the Rails testing buckets are generally not worth following. Controller tests are almost never useful because, like, the yeah. part of your stack that you're skipping is your HTTP server, which just, so what? <laughs> yeah, I guess this is probably the, the point at which we, we sort of say that they deprecated controller tests for a reason, folks. And request specs are really good. Integration tests, which uh, is what Rails calls them. If you're not using RSpec, uh, the same thing and are really good, and you should use them instead almost always. But no, and, and like view tests, right, are probably worth skipping because if you have enough yeah. logic in your views that you're feeling a need to, to unit test that, yeah, you should perhaps consider having less logic in your views. Yep. I do think there is still a place for tests that are like, here are two objects that I have tested in complete isolation with mocks or for whatever reason, not with each other. Mm -hmm. And I would like to make sure that these two objects specifically work together without exercising the entire rest of the system. I do yeah. still think there is a place for a middle, even if it's not necessarily what the Rails middle looks like, because the Rails sure. middle really is just weird versions of the top or bottom. Right, exactly. And that's why they're the middles, right? I don't disagree with you, but again, it's like, let's make sure that if you're going to do that, that everyone on your team is going to do that in a really consistent way manner because otherwise you're again going to end up with a nightmare test suite yes or no i mean like yes it should be done in a consistent manner for all tests written like this I'm, right. i guess i'm also just saying just because you have a handful of tests like that doesn't necessarily mean that those need to be common or that every time you have sure. two objects interacting you need the and these two objects interact correctly test right absolutely and actually the thing you're saying reminds me of a thing we do in go which is really funny so you know how in go when you declare an interface implicitly all objects that meet the definitions on that interface are said to implement it, right? You can put them in collections yeah. of that interface, etc. So in order to not miss doing that, a thing that's really common is in the file where you define a struct to say var underscore of type this interface equals like pointer to new empty version of this struct. And what that does is the compiler will then check at compile time that that struct does actually implement that interface. So what you're effectively doing is when you write interfaces, declaring that your thing actually implements the interface that you're checking for. And so you've you've sort of invented compile time interface checking all over again. You you've invented Java style interfaces, right? And what without what's, the, what's, without generics. And the advice I've taken from some of the more skillful gophers that I work with is to actually put that in the test file for the struct. 
I mean, yeah, I, I, the, you know, the nice thing about Go's version of interfaces is that often what you do is you want to write an interface that has previously been ad hoc and make it right. something concrete. Like the types that, that implement it don't necessarily know that they're implementing it and, and you don't necessarily know about those types. But I feel like that's also the exception. Yeah. The other thing is that like if you want like a subset of the things provided by something, you can declare those out and then like possibly have more types of the same thing. Right. Yeah. Which is really cool. So yeah, well, we could keep going on this all day, but I feel like we've been talking about testing for quite a while. So, what do you think? Should we wrap? Absolutely. Show notes for this episode can be found at yakshave.fm/seven. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can email us at hosts at yakshave.fm, tweet us at underscore yakshave, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Yakshave, and we'll see you next time. Thanks to Shopify for sponsoring this episode of Yakshave. Shopify is leveling the playing field for entrepreneurs, building products that help anyone with a great idea build a successful business. And they're adding to their world-class team across the globe. Visit shopify.com careers to find out how they work.